0: At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org.
1: Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective.
0: We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant
1: Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host Austin McCormick, and we have the privilege, privilege of having Richard Barcelos on to talk with us about at least a part of his book, Getting the Garden Right. So welcome to the Covenant podcast, Dr. Barcellus.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: If you would, would you please just introduce yourself to the audience? What do you do and, and where are you at?
2: Uh, okay. Um, you probably don't want me to start in 1961 when I was born, but that's when I was born in Central California, raised and then moved to Southern California Right after I got married in 1986 to attend the Master's Seminary and I graduated in 1989 then I moved from uh, Southern California or Los Angeles area proper up to northern Los Angeles County in the high desert. Started a church, pastored there 15 and a half years. For various reasons in the midst of uh, doctoral studies I moved to Kentucky in 2006 to finish my dissertation and to help um, Dr. Sam Walden with trying to establish a church-based seminary there, which is now called Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, Having endured the first summer there and the freezing winter, I told my wife at some point I can't live here. So five years later we moved back to Southern California and uh, started a church and I've been pastoring that church, uh, Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Palmdale, California, which is north and east of uh, Los Angeles proper. As the crow flies, probably about 50 miles, but you're probably about 60 miles from downtown Los Angeles. And I teach for the Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary three courses, and I teach two courses for IRBS Theological Seminary in Dallas, Fort Worth area.
1: Well, thank you for that introduction. We're going to go ahead and get started. In your book, In Getting, or Getting the Garden Right, you engage what is called New Covenant Theology, particularly on how they deny or modify the covenant of works and the Christian Sabbath. And in our episode today, we want to just focus on one aspect of that work, and that is the covenant of works. But before we do, could you define both New Covenant Theology and Covenant Theology for our listeners?
2: Yeah, of course, since there are many um, different people and theological groups that might use the same nomenclature uh, terminology to define themselves, it's hard to pin down exactly what is New Covenant theology. They don't have a a confession of faith. that all New Covenant theologians adhere to, the but I would say, at least in the United States, it it be, it started as a Baptist Calvinistic Baptist movement, um, and and I'll paint it in in the positive sense to uh, to highlight the importance of of uh, Christ in the Scriptures, as opposed to um, what they viewed as more of a mosaic law approach to um, to Christian ethics and um, and even the doctrine of the church. So it was a movement that has developed with various practitioners um, promoting the importance of uh, the, the New Testament. Here's another tenet, interpreting the old, the primacy of the New Testament in terms of interpretive priority, and has various uh, practitioners, some Some have now, uh, and I'm glad with this movement, have acknowledged some sort of covenant at the the beginning of the Bible uh, with Adam, with creation. They call it the creation covenant. Uh, Covenant theology uh, is not, uh, I'm, I'm not juxtaposing it to new covenant theology as a easily and clearly defined, at least historically. It has many practitioners and things like that. I'm a Baptist, so my version of covenant theology is you know, modified or different than a Presbyterian or a Pedo-Baptist would have. But covenant theology, in the broadest sense, would be uh, viewing the scriptures as uh, utilizing covenant as the means through which God relates man to him. And the first covenant with man would be The covenant in the garden with adam uh, called the covenant of works adam was a sinless son of god in the special presence of god his responsibility was to obey god according to a mandate given to him by his creator and uh, um, ultimately to arrive at the finished product which would have been uh, sinless sons of god in communion with god all throughout the earth the lord made the earth to be inhabited with with creatures created in the image of God. But Adam obviously sinned, and so that brings in the need of a, of a different uh, way to get man to glory or to the eschatological state, and that's where the covenant of grace comes in. First revealed, I think, in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. In the form of a uh, judgment, in the form of a curse on the serpent, Mercy for man, at least implicitly, is is promised there, and the covenant uh, uh, of grace would then be something like God's uh, means through which he's going to relate sinful creatures to himself, and he does that through the work of the mediator between God and man, our Lord Jesus Christ, the skull-crushing seed of the woman, as James Hamilton calls him. So that's Mm -hmm. it.
0: Well, thank you for that uh, definition and introduction on both New Covenant Theology and Covenant Theology. Uh, Our next question that we have for you is, what are some of the hermeneutical principles necessary to formulate doctrine correctly?
2: Yeah, that's a a good question. How long do you have again? (laughs) Um, Well, uh, let's start just as Creatures, we are creatures created in the image of God with the ability to communicate through language. Um, and that is common to all creatures. It was, it was common between Adam and Eve prior to the fall, and it's common b- between all creatures created in the image of God and fallen, everybody after the fall. So believers and unbelievers have the ability to both communicate and communicate through written Script or languages uh, that are then written. So, in one sense, we we, there's overlap there. There are you know documents written by anybody um, are require certain principles of interpretation. uh, What a sentence is, what a noun is, what a subject is, what a predicate is, you know things like that. Um, So there's there there's that sense. There's general hermeneutics, principles that all creatures created in the image of God and fallen, unredeemed or redeemed, used for various documents. And, and Christians historically have acknowledged you know, we use uh, common principles with unbelievers and even the interpretive, interpretation of Scripture. However, when you read Scripture, you see within Scripture, Scripture itself interpreting Scripture. Uh, This is is usually discussed under two Latin phrases. Um, I'll just put them in English. The uh, analogy of scripture and the analogy of faith. The analogy of scripture refers to scripture texts that um, are speaking about the same doctrine or the same action or historical um, event As other scripture texts so if you have a passage in one of the Gospels and you're struggling to understand it if one of the other Gospels or any other place in Scripture speaks of the same doctrine or the same historical event then we go there for help Scripture helps us interpret Scripture the analogy of faith is broader it basically says in order to understand Scripture I can I have to understand it in the context of all texts or any text of scripture finds its context in all the texts of scripture. So I can go outside of my passage to past texts that aren't even dealing with the same historical event, but uh, the theology of scripture is to be utilized uh, is a grid through which I read. I, I should read my texts. So um, that's that, that. The analogy of faith is a huge. Uh, tool used by the Protestants and then the post-Reformation guys that that ended up producing the you know the Westminster Confession and its family of uh, documents. So I would say uh, you know there are some general hermeneutical principles, but then the sacred principles of um, the Scripture texts, often citing and sometimes interpreting previous Scripture texts. Um if we're gonna understand the Bible rightly, we have to see that happening and see how the Bible writers are doing that and then try to drill down even deeper and saying, you know, what what things have to be the case for Matthew, for instance, to apply Hosea eleven one to Jesus. And that takes a lot of work, but it's doable and it's it's not something that's new. People have been doing that for for a long time. I think the the great uh principle of the analogy of faith um has allowed christian orthodoxy um the christian history or the you know the so-called great tradition to interpret the bible theologically and therefore uh, i think correctly on the main doctrines of the the christian faith
0: when we asked you to define covenant theology, you introduced uh, the covenant of works. Uh, So for this next part of this conversation, we just want to flush out the covenant of works a little more. Where do we see the covenant of works taught confessionally and scripturally?
2: You mean in historic confessions? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's clear in the Westminster Standards. It's clear. Also, in the Second London or the 1689 uh, Baptist Confession, there is a difference of the way it's formulated, but the phrase is used in both confessions, and the doctrine is the same in both both confessions. So, the clearest articulation is probably in in those documents. The doctrine predates the doc those, those documents, um, you, um, and, and I'll maybe. This out a little when I get to the scriptural argument for it, but it's clearly in the Westminster uh, Standards and the Savoy Declaration uh, later, and then the Second London Confession. It's in it's in other docu- doctrine documents as well. But as far as how those documents, um, those formulated doctrines in those documents ground the argument in scripture, um, they they first um recognize well not 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 necessarily first but it it is a method it requires a method of interpretation that is that has no problem going going outside a text the text i'm dealing with whatever it is to help one understand what that text i'm dealing with means um in light of the entirety of Holy Scripture. For example, when you read the first two or three chapters of the book of Genesis, you don't find the phrase covenant of works in that passage, in that those, uh, those per, uh, chapters, nor do you find the terms works or covenant there. So in our Contemporary mindset conditioned by a certain way of doing biblical interpretation Some people conclude therefore there's no covenant of works neither the terms Nor the phrase are utilized in the first three chapters the phrase is not even in the Bible Covenant of works, so how did they come up with these confessional formulations? Uh, that use the, the phrase well they compared scripture with scripture, and their doctrinal formulations are not expositions of individual texts, but doctrinal formulations that encompass or include the exposition of all texts that relate to this given subject. So, for example, Adam is not called the son of God or a son of God until Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Now, theologically, we could say, well, he is said to be created in the image and likeness of God, which would make him a son of God, which is true. And that's probably one reason why he's identified explicitly in Luke three thirty-eight as the son of God. But Adam didn't become a son of God when the ink was still fresh on the page that Luke was writing on. Adam was constituted as son of God by virtue of his status at creation. So there's one example where theologically, as we as we increase the lens, the interpretive lens, outside of Genesis 1 through 3, we realize that subsequent scripture sometimes makes explicit what is implicit in antecedent scripture, that is, scripture later sometimes fleshes out doctrine or, or theology that is not new to the ancient text, but is now explicitly identified um, as contained in the ancient text. The same thing is done with the the doctrine of the covenant of works. You see, God requiring obedience to Adam. You see God requiring obedience to Adam, not merely in the garden, but he was to fill the earth with image bearers like him. So it was uh, a work that started in the garden based on his obedience, but was to terminate outside of the garden as well. Now, when you um, go forward to Paul, this is a huge argument for the covenant of works. You see in Romans 5. Um, that antithesis between Adam the first and Adam the last, uh, the first Adam and the second or last Adam. And you see that it is the obedience of the last Adam that secures a righteousness for sinners. And you throw in a few other texts, you realize that the Son of God became man for us and for our salvation and he procures this salvation by suffering and glory, by an obediently suffering uh, uh, suffering life that is rewarded with resurrection, or or glory. And then, if you bring another text in Rev, uh, Romans three twenty three for all have sinned, violated the law of God, and fallen short of glory. And you ask yourself the question, who's the first sinner? The first sinner is Adam. What did he fall short of? Whatever glory is, he fell short of glory. So he wasn't created in a state that can be called, or a condition of human nature that could be called glory. But he fell short of that state of existence, which implies, uh, at least theoretically, he could have and would have attained to it if he didn't sin. So that's why we need a certain type of mediator then, or a covenant head, a federal head. We need one who can do two things, deal with our guilt, his sufferings, and deal with the fact that we have not attained glory, a state of human existence that's better, certainly better than our fallen state, but even better than Adam's created state. So when we think with a whole Bible interpretive lens, we see that when Christ comes on the scene, he is this last Adam, a sinless son of God in communion with God who represents others and who by virtue of his obedience secures a righteousness that he confers upon others, justification, which includes the forgiveness of our sins, but also glory. He is the agent through whom many sons, Hebrews 2.10, are brought to glory, a state of human existence, proffered or offered to Adam in virtue of perfect, perpetual um, and, uh, obedience, but not attained by Adam. So the last Adam takes his seed where the first Adam failed to take his. He takes us to glory. And I think that is a marvelous message. <laughs> Without it, we're doomed. So, the covenant of works is based on the, uh, the consideration of many, many passages, uh, primarily how uh, Christ ends up being what he is, and how that helps us understand Adam's initial vocation or calling uh, under this covenant of works. If you go to uh, the prophets, you can find covenantal language used with reference to Adam and his initial vocation Um, like Israel, um, or like Adam, Israel broke the covenant. Adam broke a covenant, Israel broke their covenant one was a a covenant imposed on Adam as the head of the human race in the garden, the other was, was this historical covenant imposed upon Israel, both had a covenant, both violated it so those kind of things are all put together the book does that it doesn't do it perfectly but it seeks to do that It borrows you know a lot from other people showing that i i didn't invent all this stuff i'm rambling so i'm going to stop there
1: <laughs> no you're fine i i appreciate you answering the question in detail um this next question I, i'm going to flesh it out a little bit it originally was what is lost in its denial and gained in its affirmation so before I do that, how exactly would a New Covenant theologian who, who says that there is a covenant there formulate it as opposed to how you just formulated it? And what do we lose in, in taking their approach? And what do we gain in taking your, your approach or, or what the Bible's approach is, rather?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I thought to—I uh, think that—well, I know, in the book, I acknowledge— some progress I think I'm seeing in men who have uh, traditionally used the the phrase New Covenant theology to identify themselves. And it's it's more so in what's now called progressive covenantalism um, which I think is just a more academic approach um, basically the same thing. But, But what the progressive covenantalists are doing, and I applaud them, and some of the New Covenant guys, I, I, I think I identified one or two that say this. There is a covenant in, uh, they call it the creation covenant. Um, and it, it, it terminates upon Adam more specifically. And all that's good. But I, what I have not seen is that Adam was offered or, it, or preferred to Adam was a quality of life better than his created state upon meeting the terms of, of this covenant. In other words, there wasn't what Gerhardus Voss says, eschatology preceding the need for soteriology. And what Gerhardus Voss meant by that is, is there was an eschatological overture given to Adam by God that if he failed his, what the theologians call his probation if, excuse me. If he didn't if he succeeded in his probation, he would have been rewarded with a quality of life uh, Better than his created state avoss is very clear He teaches that that's in John Owen. It's all in all the post-reformation guys that we uh, we would call our theological heroes I don't see that in In the uh, progressive covenantalists and the new covenant guys They 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 deny that and it makes it difficult to then go to the New Testament and see how the New Testament um, presents to us our Lord and His vocation, His identity, and specifically His vocation, because His vocation ends up being uh, one who suffers and one who enters into glory. Now, what are those? Why are those two things necessary for fallen human creatures? Well, because Adam sinned and Adam didn't get rewarded with what. A state of existence better than his created state, so it makes it difficult to interpret subsequent scripture uh, uh, with reference to our Lord. I think properly, and um, there's a, what was the question again?
1: <laughs> um, oh, yeah, there was something. Basic, basically, I... it was just like what is lost in their denial of the classical formulation of the doctrine, and and what is gained positively by those who acknowledge the doctrine as you have stated it.
2: Yeah, well, what is lost is this sense of eschatology preceding the need of soteriology, and that has implications with reference to uh, the mediator's vocation, as I just explained. Um, Also, there is a tendency sometimes, when you call it the creation covenant, there is this tendency I think to over covenantalize everything. Because the early authors of the post-Reformation era um, identified and you can see this in the shorter and lar- larger and shorter catechism the covenant of works as a part of divine providence not coeval or coextensive with the act of creation the creation of Adam himself they saw Adam made outside the garden, then uh, Adam placed inside the garden, and then those stipulations were revealed to him. That's where they see the covenant of works revealed to Adam. When you see it as coextensive with creation, there's a tendency to, 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 I think, over-covenantalize Uh, everything and not end up identifying specifically what is this covenant in terms of uh, how it terminates upon Adam is it Adam merely as a creature or is it Adam as a creature placed in the garden and then subsequently having revealed to him this covenant unto life or glory i think it's the latter and um you know the book spells all that out and all that stuff so for reform people or people who are confessional that uh view this covenant of creation as uh adam's covenant and coextensive with creation they have a problem with their own documents because i think the the westminster uh, standards. Well, I don't think I know. They distinguish between creation and providence, and the covenant of works as a providential revelation subsequent to Adam's creation. Uh, you can see that in the in the catechisms, but also you can see it in the Westminster Confession, especially in seven one. Um, but I I digress. So on to the next question, unless you have one connected to that.
0: Well, we'll go ahead and move on to the next question. Um, Earlier, you alluded to one of the objections to the doctrine of the covenant of works, uh, people not being able to find that terminology in the first three chapters of Genesis. What other common objections are there to the doctrine of the covenant of works that you know of, and how would you respond to them?
2: Okay, state that again.
0: What are the common objections to the doctrine of the covenant of works, and how would you respond to them?
2: Well, the biggest one is the, the, the words aren't used in Scripture, um, but but Scripture texts, in order to be explained, are not merely repeated. Uh, I, I dealt with this recently, for instance, John ten thirty, I and the Father are one. If I ask somebody. Do you believe in the full divinity of our Lord? And they said, yes. And they said, and I asked them, uh, where do you believe that from? And they said, John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. And then if I ask somebody else, do you believe in the full divinity of our Lord? And they said, no. And I said, what scripture text that drives you to that conclusion. They said John ten thirty, I and the Father are one. There you have the same text and you have two different views. One teaches the full divinity of our Lord, the other does not full teach the full divinity of our Lord. The point is this. You have to ask both people what do you think that means? And when they say when you say what do you think that means, you're implying, tell me in words not contained necessarily in the text, what you think words in the text mean. Use other words to describe the meaning there. Otherwise, we're just going to sit here and you guys are going to quote the verses back and forth and we're never going to get any place. So the, the point is is that doctrine, doctrinal formulations quite often use words other than or a series of words other than a series of words found in Scripture, because we're trying to explain what something means. You know, if you if you want to, you know, a really um, Ill, an illustration that illustrates what I'm trying to say is, you know, the person that says, "Give me Bible doctrine in Bible words." So, if you're going to stand up and preach a text, all you can use is Bible words. Um, that that just doesn't work, you know, nobody preaches like that because uh, it doesn't work. It's not the way we communicate. We we read a statement, and then we formulate another statement in our own words to try to explain that. And I think people have a problem with terms and phrases not in Scripture because they haven't thought through how doc- Bible doctrine is formulated and how we do it every day. Uh, in- you know, when we're discussing scriptures with other people. So I think that's a big thing people have to get over, the method by which doctrines are formulated. The method is this. We explain the words of scripture in words other than scripture, and it's okay. So that's a main one. You know, there's no, the terminology is not used in the Bible. And I, I think another reason why people deny it, is they you know they just don't see um, eschatology in the words of Voss preceding the need for soteriology or the proferment or offer of a quality of life based on Adam's obedience better than his created state. They don't see that, uh, and and I think one of the reasons they don't see that is because they don't integrate scripture texts um, to the degree that they need to be. When you want to understand Adam's, Adam's uh, identity and vocation, you not only study Adam, you study Christ. And when you do that, I think some of these difficulties in people's minds are, are, uh, should be satisfied. So those are two things.
1: Thank you. Um, this next question, you, you've partially alluded to in sev- several different occasions, but how does the biblical doctrine of the covenant of works help us understand the work of Jesus? And and we might even flip that on its head. How does the work of Jesus help us better understand the covenant of works, I suppose? But you can answer it how you will.
2: Yeah. That's a good way to put it because it's both, isn't it? It is both because there's ultimately one author of Scripture that's telling us the story of creation and redemption—that's God. So how does uh, how does the first Adam illumine the last Adam's identity and vocation, who he is and what he is to do? And how does the last Adam uh, illumine uh, the vocation, of, uh, the identity of vo- and vocation of the first Adam? Well, you're right—I have already alluded to that, but. You know, I, I think the sufferings and glory paradigm of the New Testament, uh, sufferings and glory, is used—I don't know—three or four times in very crucial uh, contexts. Luke 24, I, I think it's Acts 26 by Paul. Luke 24 is by Jesus, and then First Peter chapter one by Peter, sufferings and glory. And in every single case, uh, one of the times, by the way, it's sufferings and be raised from the dead on the third day, which illumines what glory means. Or when our Lord entered glory, he entered glory by virtue of his third day resurrection. But all of those cases, uh, those uh, four instances, two in Luke, one in Acts, one in first Peter, are very crucial for us to understand our Lord's work and vocation. for various reasons, but one is in all four contexts, they're relating this paradigm of sufferings and glory to what the prophets of the Old Testament would say had said. Now that's pretty important. So sufferings and glory, whatever it means, is that which was promised in the Old Testament and was brought to fulfillment by virtue of what our Lord did suffered and entered glory and again why did he have to suffer because he assuming assuming the guilt of others and then what's the need for entering into glory well to bring human nature to a permanent state of existence its created state was not a permanent state adam could uh, find himself in a different condition or a state of existence and adam did so what our lord does is he takes human nature I think I said this book before he takes us to to glory I remember Sam Waldron uh, wrote an endorsement I think it was for the better than the beginning book that I had published several years ago and he said Adam derailed the glory train and Jesus you know, put it back on the tracks or something like that. So viewing those, that paradigm of suffering and glory from the New Testament and realizing that that's referring to our Lord's uh, vocation, his work, and that it was already stated in the Old Testament, at least, uh, if not explicitly, at least implicitly, the suffering servant of our Lord, that ends up dealing with the sins of many and justifying many and, and is connected ultimately to the ushering in of the eternal state. You know, all that's in the Old Testament. So the question has to be asked, if he's the last Adam, then how much of this like entrance into glory thing uh, can we trace back and say, you know what, this was proffered to the first Adam. Well, we can't do that unless we understand clearly the vocation of the last Adam. So the first and last Adam is very important. You've probably heard this said before. If you reduce the Bible to two men, it's Adam and Christ. Get that Get that paradigm right, that antithesis right, and a lot of Christian theology becomes uh, more uh, meaningful and clearer to see. So that's um, that's my rambling answer to that.
0: Hmm. Uh Dr. Barsalas, if someone is uh, wanting to dig deeper into the covenant of works, uh, of course, we would recommend your book to them. What other resources uh, would you recommend to them for this important topic of discussion?
2: Uh, yeah, well, it's been a while since I've been in um, in the literature on that. Um you, the, the older systematic theologians uh, deal with this. Um, uh, for instance, uh, Bob Inc. has good stuff on the covenant work. So does uh, Gerhardus Voss. Does he's not, you know, the first, the easiest to, to, to mine this stuff out of, but he does. John Owen in various places. Uh, Turretin is very clear uh, on these kind of things. And you know, I just might start with a. The, the Westminster the Catechisms. Go there, the, lar- the shorter and the larger catechism, and, and you can see the doctrine formulated and in question-answer format. And, and you can see the scripture text that they used. Uh, putting them all together is not the not the purview of a of a. Well, not putting them together is the purview of a putting the text together is the purview of a catechism but it is not the the responsibility of a catechism to do all the exegetical spade work you know and the systematic theologizing of all the texts their inferences and all that stuff that's what the, the, the that's what the you know books do and so uh, you know somebody else in the 19th 18th century um, Thomas Boston has um, classic work on the covenant of works that would be uh, would be helpful as well it's in Spurgeon go to Spurgeon go to Spurgeon.org or whatever it is and and do a thing on the covenant of works and you can you can find it in Spurgeon too Spurgeon is very solid on that
0: well Dr. Barcellus we want to thank you for uh, taking your time to discuss the covenant of works today so thank you very much
2: oh well thanks for having me I hope it'll help somebody
0: We sure will. And to our listeners, we want to wish you grace and peace.
1: For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.